Hey everybody, it's your buddy Brando, psyched to bring you another episode of the Brando Cast. At the beginning of the show, you're going to hear me tell Mr. Steve Agee that I just have a cold. Boy, was I lying to myself because a day later, I tested positive for COVID-19, despite being double vaxxed. Yeah, so let me be a cautionary tale. If you feel at all wonky, allergic, or fluish, just go get tested. Don't wait for a couple of days like your idiot friend Brando. So without further ado. All right, cats and kittens, we're back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando cast. You know, I say that every episode is fucking special, but Today is really fucking special because my guest today, all he does is fucking work. Holy Christ balls. If you go to IMDb and you type the words, Steve Agee, prepare to have your fucking mind blown. Prepare to be jealous, citizens of Los Angeles, because this dude has been in fucking everything. And currently, he is in my favorite movie of the summer, Suicide Squad, where he plays John, one of the dudes in the main office which I believe means that he will also be playing John in the upcoming Peacemaker series. Right. Uh, fuck. Yeah. So <laughs> without further ado, let's pull him in. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mr. Steve Ag. Hey, dude. How's it going, man? Um, well, I have a little bit of a cold. I do not have COVID-19. Oh, my I God. <laughs> Can I tell you, there is nothing more terrifying than getting regular sick during COVID. It's terrifying. Right. I, I was I didn't get sick for two years, and I I've been in um, Vancouver for seven months, and I just got back a couple of weeks ago and was staying at a friend's house, and they have a cat, and I have allergies, and so I started developing a cough, and I was so panicked over this cough that like normally I would just take some you know Robitussin and get on with my life, but I was like <laughs> beside myself. <laughs> <laughs> a public cough is really the worst thing because all heads turn and oh. you're like, look, I just fucking a fly just flew into my mouth. Calm down, everybody. Do you know how many times I've heard one of my friends go, <coughs> not COVID <laughs> or sneeze and go, not COVID? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I have I this sniffle. Mm -hmm. Uh, my lady has been looking at me like you fucking bastard, go get a fucking test, you know, but I'm a dude and, um, you know, we're not going to go get a test until I'm not going to go get a test until I have an ax in the middle of my head. But, uh, I swear to God, I'm all right. I just got a little sniffle. I don't know how, maybe I picked it up at the Foo Fighters. I did go to the Foo Fighters oh the other God. night at the forum. I saw I will, that. Yeah. I, I will say that was a, a tiny bit scary. Oh my God. Yeah. hundred percent. You're braver than I am, but it was vaccinated only, right? It was. And you did have to show your card, um, at the door with your ID, which, you know, yeah. felt something, but, but it was still, it was a completely sold out forum. And everyone's like, la, da, 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 we're here. I wore my mask the whole time. And of course, when I get the sniffles a couple of days later, I'm like, God fucking <laughs> damn it. By the way, the forum is so great for music now it used to i mean they've always had shows there i mean you know back as far as i can remember but at some point after the lakers left 
there was nothing going on there. And then they redid the forum, like really specifically for music. And it sounds so much better now. Now, you grew up in Southern California, correct? Yeah, an okay, hour so, away in Riverside. Okay, so when you were a young dude, did you grow up going to see shows at the Forum or Long Beach Arena or coming into L.A. to go see shows wherever? Yeah, most of the shows I saw in L.A. were at the, it's gone now, but like the Universal Amphitheater. Right. Um, I saw some shows. I saw Smashing Pumpkins at the Forum. Um I saw Black Sabbath at the forum. Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I saw my fair share. The the thing I really am bummed I missed was uh, when Prince did that whole run at the forum of like a month of shows. I didn't see one of those, and I never got to see Prince live. I did see Prince live, but I did not see that run of shows, which were like, I think tickets were like 25 bucks or something like that. Yeah. Like seven yeah. Or eight shows. And that's, that's on me. I, you're, you're so right. The forum is a fantastic place mm-hmm. to see music again. They've really souped it up. It sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. ELO uh, was, I, when they played ah, two, two, two and a half years ago, the best sounding show I've ever yeah. heard in my life. Maiden has been playing the forum on the last few tours. It's it's a fucking great place to see, uh, and yeah. it's not it's not overwhelmingly huge. No, it's really not. It's when you're in there, you look around, and you're like, this isn't that this isn't that big. Yeah, I would I would totally pull like a like a thirty five dollars seat up in the up in the balcony. You know, if if you don't mm-hmm. care about the band that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I did go to the Foo Fighters. I don't have COVID. I'm psyched to be talking to you. I sound like shit, but it doesn't fucking matter because yeah. you're here. And um, and I'm so excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today oh, me too. Uh, with Mr. Steve Asian. Now, usually, I will admit this up front. Usually when when we talk about bands on the Brando cast, most of the time I have a leg up on people or it's a band that I also love. But really, for one of the first times on this show, we're talking about a band that is not in my <laughs> wheelhouse. But I'm excited to yeah. dip my toe into the waters of Oingo Boingo. Oingo Boingo was an American new wave band formed by songwriter and composer Danny Elfman in Los Angeles back in 1979. The band emerged from the ashes of a surrealist street musical theater troupe called the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo. Oingo Boingo were known for their high-energy live concerts and experimental music, which can be described as a mix of rock, ska, pop, and punk. The band's body of work spans 17 years with a number of lineup changes, and their best-known songs include Only a Lad, Dead Man's Party, and Weird Science. So, Mr. A.G., tell me what Oingo Boingo means to you. Oingo Boingo is probably my first band that I was obsessed with. Uh, I was, there was never, I never really fit into a type of music uh, through like junior high and into high school. Um, you know, I I was of teenage years in the 80s, which is a really fucking weird time for music. It was very synthesizer driven, but you would still have like, you know, prog rock like Rush, who I see behind you right now on your uh, <laughs> virtual background. And, um, you know, like bands like Maiden, uh, Maiden. And I got into bands like that way later, like into college and even the synth bands, I, I was not super into. And then uh, 
I was on a class field trip and a friend of mine, my friend Jody was sitting in front of me on the bus and she had a Walkman and she was listening to music. And I asked her what she was listening to. And she gave me the headphones and it was Oingo Boingo. And it, I mean, it was new wave, but it was a lot more guitar driven than it was synthesizer driven. And it had a very punk feel to it. A lot of people call it no wave instead of new wave, you know, and, um, I was hooked immediately. I was hooked immediately. I've seen them so many times. They became very famous for their Halloween shows. I think largely in part because of songs like Dead Man's Party. But yeah, amazing live shows. Oddly enough, later in life, in late into my 30s, I was looking for a place to live. I was living in a guest house and the people who I was living with were selling the guest house. And I I was up in Beechwood Canyon and I had to find a place to live. And I was walking out to my car one day and I saw a friend of mine walking her dog. And I was like, oh, my God, you live around here? She's like, yeah. I go, "Ah, I'm moving. I I, I live up here, too, but I I need a place to stay. And she goes, oh, my uh, my apartment has a place opening up and uh, it's just right down the block. And she goes, Richard Elfman is my landlord. Danny Elfman's brother. (laughs) And I I'm friends with. Richard's uh, daughter-in-law, Jenna Elfman, um, who's married to Richard's son. And I go, oh, I have kind of an in. I know his daughter-in-law and his and his son as well. And so she, we went down to her apartment. She introduced me and he's like, you're friends with my kids. He's like, you can have that. He didn't do a credit check. He's like, and if he had done a credit check, I probably wouldn't have gotten the apartment, but he's like, you can live here. And um yeah, that's my connection to Oingo Boingo is Richard Elfman was my landlord. Um, really amazing guy. Amazing filmmaker, too, by the way. He had a film in the 80s called Forbidden Zone. Pico uh, and which, which was, Pico and Sepulveda. Yes, and you know And uh, starring Danny Elfman, who uh, did a lot of the music for it as well. If, if people haven't watched that, it's really a cult, you know, favorite. It, it's an amazing movie. And um yeah, Richard was my landlord um, okay. until about two years ago. Oh, what? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm. I am broadcasting from basically the corner of Scenic and Beechwood right now. That's oh where God, I. Yeah. That's where I live. Um, I don't. You don't have to tell me where you lived exactly in Beechwood Canyon, but um, uh, it was it was off of Cherimoya. By the way, p- for people listening outside the city of Los Angeles. You must know that you're really not official in Hollywood until you live in an apartment on Cherimoya in Beechwood Canyon, even yeah. if it's just for one fucking year. That or uh, the Oakwoods. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is true. Now the Ava apartments on uh, now Bond. the Avas, yeah. Um, but uh, I believe, honest to God, I believe that John Lennon lived in an apartment on Cherimoya back during his uh, Hollywood vampire days when he would run around with Harry Nilsson and Nicky Dolans. I can, swear to God, he lived somewhere on Can I tell you Chairman. something? Tell me. It was my landlord's house that he lived in. What's come fucking on? God damn it, Steve Agee. You're blowing yes. my mind. Richard lives. So it's, it's a small, like eight unit apartment building and they're really cool looking apartments. And the, the, there's a house in the driveway as well. And it's like this big, amazing bungalow with a, you know, a patio up on the roof and um, overlooking Beechwood Canyon. 
That's where John Lennon stayed when he was in LA part of the time. I think he was also in Malibu. Yeah. That's the house Robert Downey Jr. And Sarah Jessica Parker also lived in that same house in the eighties. God damn it. That, that, that's, this is why I knew that you all you were going to do is crush it. I knew you were going to crush it when you were coming on the show. But and I had heard I God mean, this, damn it. this apartment uh, complex went back. I mean, it was probably built in the 20s. And I had also heard that um, Betty Davis not lived in the house. But when she was, you know, before she was Betty Davis, lived in one of those apartment units. <laughs> A lot of well, history. I, I am uh, I am currently living in, in this situation with someone who I think you know my my girlfriend Julia Wallace. She was a writer oh, yeah. on on American Princess. Yeah, uh, totally. So, so she dwells here too. If you hear the dog barking, that means that she has just come home from Pilates. So we'll have to deal with that. But let's pull. <laughs> let's pull. Uh, say Rick, hi to Julia for me. I definitely will. Let's pull Richard Elfman into the story of Oingo Boingo. Formed in the early 70s, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo began as a street theater troupe in L.A. founded by Richard Elfman, the great landlord of Beachwood Canyon. The name was inspired by a fictional secret society in the Amos and Andy TV series called the Mystic Knights of the Sea. This this version of the band employed as many as 15 performers at any given time, playing over 30 instruments, including some instruments built by band members. Richard Elfman even produced and directed a movie which Steve referenced before called The Forbidden Zone, which, I got was, ahead of fi- you. <laughs> which was finally released in 1980. And if you went to Rocket Video in the 90s, they would probably tell you to rent that fucking movie. Richard's brother Danny wrote the music for the film. In 1979, Danny Elfman reformed the group as a rock band under the new name Oingo Boingo, at which point most of the existing members left. Elfman stated that the shift was inspired by the Ska Revival, uh, featuring bands such as The Specials, Madness, and The Selector, new wave bands like XTC, Devo, and Funboy 3, as well as the energy and speed of punk. That same year, the band self-funded a promo record known as The Demo EP. That effort paid off when the record caught the attention of IRS Records. IRS then released a revised version of the EP in 1980, simply called the Oingo Boingo EP. Success came later that year when LA's legendary new wave radio station, K-Rock, began to play only a lap. Okay, you grew up in Southern California, so did you guys get K-Rock out there in Riverside? Oh it's all I listen to. K- all I listen to is K-Rock, uh, KMET, which was 94.7. That's how I found all of my comedy uh, in the 70s was through the Dr. Demento show. Uh, KMET was 94.7, which later changed formats to easy listening to e- easy listening and became 94.7 The Wave. And uh, but before that, it was, you know, a rock station just like KLOS or, um, you know, but K-Rock had the market on more new wave, you know, rock. But yeah, I was a diehard K-Rock listener. And I'll say for people listening outside of Southern California, the number of bands that were broken by K-Rock, uh, <laughs> specifically by its DJs like the legendary Rodney Bingenheimer, basically just include a who's who of American new wave bands, as well as British bands from Depeche Mode to Oasis. I mean, K-Rock was really 
K-Rock in LA and WLIR in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, just play different music. Um, I, sir, just so you know where I'm coming from, and the reason that Oingo Boingo is not in my wheelhouse, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh, yeah. Uh, people who listen to this podcast all the time know the story. Uh, Albuquerque is metal. So yeah. I am. I will be 54 this November. So, you know, 1980, 81, 82, those are, you know, I'm 13, 14, 15. That's really when music locks in, I think, for mm -hmm. everybody, especially young dudes. So my life was nothing but Rush, Maiden, ACDC, classic Van Halen, Dio, Scorpions, Saxon, because all those bands came to, to Albuquerque. We yeah. had no exposure to New Wave other than what was on MTV. So even though I am going to school every day in Rush and Iron Maiden shirts, secretly at night, I'm my brothers and I are watching MTV and we're seeing in the early days of MTV, they would play uh, Little Girls mm -hmm. or they would play, you know, Depeche Mode and New Order and The Cure and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, uh, we weren't, um, I wasn't exposed to it enough. You know, a lot of, a lot of people weren't who did not live on the West coast. Like yeah. Danny Elfman has said, you know, they, they got used to playing big theater venues, large, like thousand seat venues on the West coast on a tour. And then by the time they would get to the East coast, they'd be in like a 500 seat club, you know? Oh yeah. Uh, it was, it was a real West coast band. I mean, it's, I have friends who are, I'm, I'm 52. I, I have friends who uh, grew up on the East Coast who were my age. They were like, who? <laughs> I'm like, Oingo Boingo. I was shocked that not as many people knew about this band as, as I figured they would. And then if you say, you know, Weird Science or Dead Man's Party, which are two of my least favorite Oingo Boingo songs because they're the most played. And uh, I was that then people would go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard them. Hmm. But uh, it, it's shocking because they have a lot of albums and a lot of really great songs. Now, give me a portrait. Just paint a picture of River, Riverside in the late 70s, early to mid 80s for me. Just give me Steve Agee's take on that part uh, of the Inland Empire. Riverside is part of, is this valley, uh, is, is in the valley, uh, and it's in an area referred to as the Inland Empire which is uh, like Riverside and San Bernardino and Upland. And you would not really know about it unless you drove to Palm Springs or Lake Arrowhead then, or Big Bear. Then you would probably have to drive through either Riverside or, or San Bernardino. Um, but it was very dirty, <laughs> like a lot of dirt. It, it's considered desert. And um the music that was really popular when I was growing up was punk and ska. Um, not in, in Riverside. It wasn't as much like new wave. It was a lot of, you know, like black flag and circle jerks and, but also like the specials and, and there was a club in Riverside called Spanky's. I believe the full name was Spanky's cafe, really small, small club. And that's where, I saw a lot of bands come through, uh, a lot of ska, like, um, the fuck are they called? No, I'm blanking. Uh, no Doubt would play there. Before Gwen Stefani was even in No Doubt, when it was just like her brother and some <laughs> some of those other guys. And, you know, uh, like Hepcat and the Voodoo Glow Skulls and a lot of ska. Fishbone played there. Um, 
Why is that? What, what, like culturally, what, what about ska grabbed the people out in Riverside? I don't know. It wasn't really roots ska. It wasn't as much like the specials, although that was part of it, but it was like, there was a new era of ska that was coming out in the eighties and nineties. That was kind of punk based, you know? Well, I know from Brian Pesane mm-hmm. and my own experience at Ozfest in San Bernardino that the the Ozfest that happens at the Glen Helen Blockbuster Hyundai right. whatever you want to call it pavilion is always known to be the fucking roughest Ozfest crowd in the country. <laughs> like yeah, if you took the, the San Bernardino Ozfest crowd and made them fight the crowd at uh, the Meadowlands in New Jersey or, you know, some Alpine Valley, Wisconsin, the San Bernardino crowd would beat the shit out of everybody. It's it's so was that element around you? Yeah. It's desert people. It's um, a lot of, there's a lot of meth out in the inland empire. (laughs) And um, yeah, by the way, Glen Helen regional park was also where they had the us festival, a very famous music festival. I believe 84 or something like that. But also Cal Jam, which they've kind of rebooted. Um, last time I went to Glen Helen was probably two and a half years ago to see Foo Fighters and Tenacious D and Iggy Pop playing with uh, the Queens of the Stone Age guys. And that was the first time I had been to Glen Helen in like probably 25 years. And it was <laughs> just, just as I remembered it. I, I, we went, the last time I went was for the Ozfest with Maiden. And as we were walking in, I swear to God, this is true. Um, as we were walking in, this guy was walking back out of the parking lot. And he, you know, we parked way the fuck away. We were like basically parked in Hesperia, you know, yeah, yeah. and because we got there late because we, we were not going to throw in for the entire day of Ozfest. And we see this guy walking through the crowd with literally like a, a quarter sized, perfect sized hole in the middle of his head. Just I was bleeding. Gonna, I was going to say, I bet he was bleeding. <laughs> yeah. No, no, yeah. just blood gushing, but he was walking normally as if like, like that hole in his head didn't hurt. Then when we get to the front gate and I swear <laughs> this is true, we get to the front gate, we're about to go in and we watch six or seven, maybe eight security guards just all wrestling one bald dude with no shirt and those bullshit long shorts, just wrestling him out of the gate. They threw him out. He stumbled, turned around and then went right back and attacked all six, seven guys. Yep. That's Riverside. (laughs) That's my hometown (laughs) and kids on that show. And I've never gone back because, um, on that particular show, like the kids were literally lighting seats on fire to get high from the fumes that they were creating with the melting plastic. That was a thing in like the eighties and nineties. I, (laughs) I saw it a lot. I I saw it at, um, Oh, who was it? It it was uh, the band. They were like a a spring off of butthole surfers. Um, Maybe not a spring. uh, Al Jorgensen's band. What ministry. I went to a ministry show in Irvine Meadows Amphitheater and like the whole place was on fire. People were (laughs) dancing around the fire, making big ass bonfires and it was nuts. Yeah, I I was invited because I went to school in Chicago and I was invited to go to the after tour party of ministry in like 1990. And it was at a punk club in Chicago called Exit. And I was like, nope, don't want to die. Not going to the party. Don't want to die tonight because I know if I go there, I'll get dosed. 
at the yeah, very by, least. By the way, the that's the loudest show I've ever been to in my life was ministry. My friend and I were going through our wallets frantically looking for receipts to chew up and put in our ears. It was so fucking loud. It, it hurt. Like it was fucking loudish. It was like, it doesn't have to be this loud. Oh no. Following regional success of Only a Lad, Oingo Boingo released its first full-length album in 1981, which was also titled Only a Lad, uh, and featured a new recording of that song. The band then released Nothing to Fear in 1982 and Good for Your Soul in 1983. Although Oingo Boingo's sound was turned as new wave, its use of exotic percussion, a three-piece horn section, unconventional scales and harmony, and surreal imagery was a genre-skewing combination. Fuck you, Wikipedia, that is a mouthful. In 1984, <laughs> bassist Carrie Hatch and get, uh, keyboard player Richard Gibbs departed to form the short-lived band Zuma 2, and Oingo Boingo went on temporary hiatus, although this was not known publicly at the time. Danny Elfman later claimed the two departing members had lost the spirit, but stated, I can never blame anybody for losing the spirit. It's very hard being in an eight-piece ensemble doing what, at the time, was non-commercial music. Um, who else were you into when you were growing up? Oh, boy. That era or, like, I mean, it was pretty much straight. It was Oingo Boingo, and it was comedy. Like, I... Uh-huh. I didn't give a shit. And there was also a very comedic element to Oingo Boingo's music. And um, yeah, I mean, when I was 11 years old, I bought my first album with my own money and it was fucking George Carlin, a place for my stuff. I was 11. I didn't understand half the jokes. I just thought he was so goddamn funny. I wanted to be a comedian when I was like 10 years old. I wanted to be an actor and a comedian when I was 12, 10 years old. And that was all I was buying and listening to really was comedy. So were you also watching television to see Carlin on the tonight show or SCTV? I don't know if they play SCTV in in Los Angeles back then in the, in the early eighties. Not really. You could find it on like repeats on odd channels, but for me, it was uh, three's company. John Ritter was my hero. He's the reason I became an actor. John wow, Ritter. no shit. 100% John Wow. Ritter. Did you watch that little piece that they put together on CNN? I did, yeah, yeah. And how they do? They did great, yeah. It was really awesome. Wow. Um, so was it just his style? Was it his aura? Because I know like a lot of dudes our age, Bill Murray was their guy. You know, And, was, and every oh, kid from Bill Chicago is like, I want to be Bill Murray. It was Bill Murray, too. I was a little too young to be going to movies and stuff though. So I didn't really know Bill Murray as much. It was just, the TV was always on in our house. So it was John Ritter. It was his charisma, his, just his delivery and his physicality. I was like, this is, it's almost like stand up comedy, man. This guy's amazing. Did he come? Do you know? I, cause I don't really know anything about John Ritter. Did he come from any LA comedic troupe? Like it was he a member of the groundlings in the seventies? Well, his parents were, his dad was a famous like cowboy actor, musician named Tex Ritter. Right. And his mom was an actress, I believe. And um, so it was just kind of the family business. 
And then I think he went to like UCLA, you know, theater school. And I don't think he did groundlings or anything though. Um, so when did you first decide, all right, I'm going to put my foot on this stage and I'm going to try oh. to get up and do a little bit of stand up. When did that happen for you? I was in college. Um, I didn't really want to go to college, but my parents wanted me to. So I was kind of just fumbling my way, figuring out what I wanted to do. And so my first or second year, I was an art major. I have a degree in painting, like (laughs) two-dimensional painting. And I haven't painted a picture since I got out of college, but it was in college that I really started just feeling things out. And I, you know, did open mic, you know, stand up uh, around the Inland Empire in Los Angeles. And uh, I, I started playing in a band with my roommates and that's what brought me to LA was music. I was playing bass in a band <clears throat> and, uh, okay. Time out then. Yeah. What, okay. What was the name of that band? The Grazers. And did the Grazers print up t-shirts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and find one and send, send it. To, it was a t-shirt that I don't think I drew it, but I, I, I learned silk screening when I was an art major. And so I was printing the t-shirts and it was just like an animated uh, drawing of a bull with a big (laughs) ring in its nose. Yes. With the grazers underneath it. Oh, 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 so grazing as in grazing Uh, a grazer is a a bull that grazes on grass. Yeah. Fan. Goddamn tastic. What, what do you feel like was the first like, Real official. All right, the Grazers are doing okay tonight because we're playing at such and such in Rialto. Oh, what what was it? No, I will tell you. So my roommate was in a band with his friends, and they just did like covers, and it was a lot of you know like punk and rock covers, like Buzzcocks and uh, Ramones and just everything, the full spectrum, like Rolling Stones, and uh, just like the movie. Um, that thing you do, uh-huh. <laughs> but instead of a drummer, it was their bass player broke his arm. And I had a bass and my roommate was like, Hey, we're going to fuck around and practice. Do you want to come play with us? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so we went uh, to their practice space and um, we had so much fun and we all hit it off so well that while we were there that day, we just were fucking around and kind of just wrote like three or four songs, like just really quick punk songs that we were all so hyped about. And I was super hyped about, and I was like, this is it. We, this is, this is band shit. We like, we have our own songs now. I go, we should be playing live. Like they weren't playing like live shows. I think maybe they did some parties, but I was like, we got to be playing clubs. And they're like, uh, I don't know. And I was like, between these four songs that we've written and like the 800 fucking covers that, you guys know we could do a show. And so I went back to the dorm and just started calling clubs because in the back of like LA weekly and uh, the press enterprise, which was in Riverside, you know, they would advertise for bands and stuff. And I started calling clubs and just leaving messages. And the first place that the first person to call me back was this guy. I will never forget his name. It was Mike Gian Greco. <laughs> in, in Los Angeles, and he booked our very first show, which was at the Whiskey A Go Go. Come on, yeah. And I got off the phone. I was like, um, "We're playing at the Whiskey A Go Go in two <laughs> weeks," and we were all just like, "Uh, what?" 
And so we just, for like two weeks, we, we would rehearse every day and we wrote more songs. And I mean, the whole thing back in the eighties was, or this was the nineties. Now it was pay to play. Like, yeah, he gives you like 200 tickets and you have to sell that you buy those tickets, but essentially from the promoter. And then you're supposed to sell the tickets to your friends or on the street or whatever. But I think this first time he didn't do pay to play. He was just like, can you bring people? And I, and I was like, yeah. And we were in college. So all of our fucking friends came and the place was packed and it was amazing. And then from there, like they booked us at like the, the Roxy and we played all over LA and San Diego too. Cause our drummer and guitarist were from San Diego. So we played all the clubs in San Diego and it was, it was really amazing. Uh, okay. I'm fucking jealous. Um, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not a musician, uh, but people have heard this on the podcast before, but for the last number of years before the pandemic, I would put together a band on my birthday. Yeah. Uh, and I have a friend who owns a bar in North Hollywood, Skinny's on Lancashire. Sure. And he would give me the place for the night. And I would do Buzzcocks, Ramones, Cheap Trick, Van Halen. I would sing because yeah. I can do I can do the karaoke thing. I can mm-hmm. I can I can channel Iggy for a second. I can channel Ozzy for a second. Um you know, I can get up at the farmer's market on a Saturday night and fucking do some karaoke. So I would yeah. put together a band because um, so many of my friends are musicians and and just have a good time and fill the place. And now I have to make a decision like my birthday's coming up again, but I, you know, it will be the third year that I would have missed it because of the pandemic. And I'm I'm so dying. Just just all I need is one <clears throat> night a year. But uh, that was just a, a weird way of saying, like, I'm jealous of the Grazers experience, and I kind of want a, I kind of want a Grazers T-shirt. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? Danny Elfman used the 1984 hiatus as an opportunity to release a solo album, and Solo was released in late 1984. Shortly after releasing Solo. Boingo Boingo returned to performing with a few new members. The first release with the new lineup was 1985's Dead Man's Party. The album marked notable change towards a more pop-oriented songwriting and became the band's most commercially successful record. It featured their highest charting song, Weird Science, which was written for the John Hughes film of the same name. In fact, Danny Elfman got a direct call from John Hughes, who wanted Elfman to write that song for the movie. Besides Weird Science, Oingo Boingo appeared on a number of movie soundtracks in the early to mid-1980s. The soundtrack to the movie Bachelor Party included a theme song written by Elfman, and an unreleased Oingo Boingo song called Something Isn't Right. Danny Elfman also began to score major films during this period, beginning with 1985's Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Elfman would go on to write the scores for almost all of Tim Burton's films. Steve, when was the last time that you watched Weird Science? Oh, probably like six months ago. (laughs) (laughs) I, in addition to being a huge Oingo Boingo fan, John Hughes is my favorite director of all time. Yes. Um, I have all of his movies. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, they're very dated, but for me, somehow they still hold up. I, Weird Science is probably the most bizarre of all of his movies, which says a lot because they're all really weird. Um, but just the pre- premise alone of two kids creating a woman on their computer 
and then having, you know, basically the computer hit by lightning and creating this woman and who's got magical power. It's nuts. I also heard that John Hughes wrote that movie in two days. Yeah. <laughs> like probably fueled by cocaine. I don't yeah. know. But oddly, if you look at a lot of Wikipedia pages for John Hughes movies, a lot of them like Ferris Bueller's also says it was written in two days. So I think there may have been one of his movies written in two days and there's just now a lot of speculation as to which one it was, but I would guess it was probably weird science. Um, could, could someone, let's just imagine that weird science did not exist. Could someone write weird science, take that script exactly as it was written in 1984, 1985 and hand it to a studio and have that studio make it today. Is there like, is it crazy misogynistic? Is it crazy? Like nerd, anger, sex, women suck. I, I haven't seen it in a million years. It's really weird because it's kind of misogynistic, but also like these two teenagers create this like hot model. They never have sex with her once, you know, it's, (laughs) it's kind of heartwarming and how innocent and these guys are. So it, it could maybe happen. I mean, I think there definitely would have to be some stuff that changed, but like most of John Hughes movies were very eighties. So there's a lot of shit in there that you couldn't do now. Like you watch it. There's some cringe moments where, you know, they, you know, use certain gay slang terms to call each other names. And, um, well, there's always, there's there's always tricking the hot girl into making out with you. Yes. There's always that. Um, yeah, that it's one of my favorite John Hughes movies though. I love it's, it. It's so weird. Well, you know, the fun thing about like, you know, your involvement with Mr. James Gunn and John mm-hmm. Hughes, those two people. And for me also Wes Anderson, the importance of the soundtrack for their yeah. work. Like for me, it's Wes Anderson and James Gunn doing the greatest fucking soundtracks they're just blowing everyone out of the water back then it was john hughes like john hughes movie soundtracks were filled with like stuff like that was like deep album cuts like we're not just going to give you a new order hit like here's a song you probably never heard before no i would also throw in edgar wright uh, for soundtrack uh, like and scoring and soundtrack um yeah those three guys are nailing it um but yeah, I I also I while I'm thinking about it, uh, the the solo album that Danny Elfman did called Solo S O L O, that I believe was a a record company. He was switching companies, I think maybe to get out of a contract. So he he or he had just gotten out of a contract, and whichever company that whichever label that album was made with. I've heard him interviewed saying they just wanted a Danny Elfman album. They just wanted Danny Elfman to write an album. They didn't want the band. They didn't want Oingo Boingo. They wanted Danny Elfman. And um, so he wrote this album and he hired Oingo Boingo as his backing band. Like he, he didn't want to stop working with these guys. And so he's like, okay, I signed a contract. And those guys were all brought in as session musicians, but it was, it's annoying. If you, anyone who listens to it, it is definitely, it is straight up an Oingo Boingo album. It, it should always be considered an Oingo Boingo album. So that's what helped them get to MCA records that helped them get out of bad shitty contract with company X, uh, well, IRS records, and then get I, to MCA. I think so. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, if there's any other little dashes of uh, Oingo Boingo information that you want to <laughs> add to this, um, I, I am I am flying. No, I'm not flying blind because um, they were always out there. My brother Ryan Smith, who listens to the podcast, he's always loved Oingo Boingo. So but um, but you know, at the height of Oingo Boingo was the height of me you know, walking the earth, trying to look like I was uh, a member of the replacements, but also a guy who loved uh, Oingo Boingo or uh, Iron Maiden. You know what I'm saying? I get it. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Let me just read a couple more blurbs and then we'll wrap this fucking thing up. The album Boingo was released in 1987. The band's 1988 release, Boingo Alive, comprised live re-recordings of previous album songs on a studio soundstage, plus a new song, Winning Side. This new track was also released as a single and became a number 14 hit on U.S. modern rock radio stations. In 1990, Boingo Boingo released their seventh studio album, Dark at the End of the Tunnel featuring more mellow songs than any previous release and including the singles Out of Control and Flesh and Blood. In 1995, after citing permanent hearing damage from performing live and conflicts with his film scoring career, Danny Elfman announced that Boingo would be disbanding after 17 years. The band embarked on a farewell tour that year, ending with a final Halloween performance at the old Universal Amphitheater. The concert was filmed and released as a live album and DVD. Now, let me just, one last note before we get uh, Mr. Agee's thoughts. Everybody knows that Danny Elfman is one of the biggest composers and scores in fucking film history. And so many of his scores uh, are featured in major movies, including Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Goodwill Hunting, Men in Black, Spider-Man, Big Fish, and The Nightmare Before Christmas. He's also written a ton of themes for TV shows, including The Simpsons, Tales from the Crypt, and Desperate Housewives. Think about the money he's made from The Simpsons theme song alone. Mind-blowing. It's a mind-blowing. And if people have, you know, you will always see the... the you will, As soon as you hear a Danny Elfman score, you know it's Danny Elfman. Yeah. By the way, I think he's still... Works with the Oingo with his Oingo Boingo uh, guitar player Steve Bartek. I think Steve Bartek and Danny have been working together for decades still on scores. I think Bartek does a lot of his arranging and stuff like that. But um, also Boingo Alive, that the live studio album they did is it's a double it's a double album like double CD and it's it's amazing. Like they, it's a lot of you know the same songs but re-recorded live in the studio really really worth owning it's really good i am so mad at universal for bulldozing the universal amphitheater because i got to see so many great shows there you know build harry potter land in some other spot you know that was a great place to see shows i went to one of the last shows ever at that venue was a queens of the stone age show and i went and it was a great way to go out. It was such a great show. But yeah, that's that venue was amazing. I saw so many awesome bands there. Uh, the, the, the Grazers never played the Universal Amphitheater. Oh, I wish. <laughs> what? So what What? What put an end to the Grazers? Was it the classic tale of uh, cocaine and uh, girlfriend stealing? And uh... <laughs> No, it was the fact that we were all in school and 
school started coming to an end and everyone had to start worrying about jobs. I was the only person who's like, I'm staying here in LA and I'm going <laughs> to figure something out. Cause I don't want a job, but uh, you know, Tim Gillespie is still a really good friend of mine. Who's our singer. He, he left and joined the seminary and is now a pastor. And um, uh, Thomas, who was our guitar player uh, is a nurse. Now I think he lives I think he lives in Tennessee or he was at one point. And then Nate, our drummer, I think became, or he was studying uh, archeology, span but I think I heard he's a, um, a lawyer now. <laughs> and I am just still telling fart jokes and doing podcasts, <laughs> noodling around on my, my guitars back there. Okay. I see the theater of the mind people. Mr. AG has a, a number of guitars back there. So do you find time to play and stuff? Once in a while, I just dick around in my office, but yeah. <laughs> so what was, so when did you really make the, when was the big push to stand up? Um, it really wasn't until the early two thousands. Like I've done it off and on. Um, but I, I met Sarah Silverman and probably, 1999, maybe 2000 and became really good friends. And her sister, Laura used to run a, a stand-up night at a, a place called the martini lounge, which you may know of. It's not there anymore, but it's right where Larchmont dead ends into Melrose over by uh, Paramount studios. Uh, it was a really great club. It was a rock venue, but Laura would do a, a stand-up night once a week, once a week or once a month. And so I just kind of started doing shows regularly a lot there. And then once we started doing the Sarah Silverman show for Comedy Central, a lot more doors open. So I, I was afforded the luxury, which I don't know if I really deserved, of, you know, getting asked to go up at the improv and you know, I would tour with Sarah sometimes. And so it really didn't kind of ramp up until the early 2000s. Uh, people should know that Laura Silverman is fucking fantastic at karaoke. Great singer. Laura's yeah. a great singer. She used to be part. We had a regular crew of people that would go to Sardo's in Burbank. It started at the Brass Monkey in Koreatown. Yeah. Oh, my God. But, the but it Monkey. moved to Sardo's because no one knew that they were doing karaoke at Sardo's. And my weird little group of karaoke friends that would band together every Sunday nights included Laura Silverman, uh, an ancient Chris Hardwick, yeah. um, uh, Moon Zappa, and some other uh, weirdos. And um, that is like one of my favorite period. You know, if you live in L.A. long enough, you, you can look back and you have all these weird periods of time where you just had fun activities going on, non-income generating fun activities. And yeah, going to Sardo's, Sard and Sardo's, Dimples, Brass Monkey. Sardo's, by the way, home of porn star karaoke. I don't yes, know that's right. That. Yes, yeah. that's right. Hosted by Jeff from Taxi. Some nights. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I spent, I, we, we would open and close Sardo's, but again, we found, somehow we found it because the guy who was the <laughs> KJ, the karaoke jock at the Brass Monkey in Koreatown, Luke, started doing karaoke at Sardo's. This weird little, uh, people listening outside of Los Angeles, this weird little, uh, restaurant. Uh, in a mini mall that includes a Vons and a Bank donut of America, shop. Yeah. And, and Dana Drug. 
And uh, God damn it, do I miss that that period? Right of time. over by the very famous Milt and Edie's dry cleaners on Pass Avenue and Riverside. And- <laughs> yeah, if you want your jeans hemmed for thirty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever? Those have you guys. ever gone to the the rock and roll, or is it rock and roll or heavy metal karaoke in West Hollywood that was? Well, Ricky I, Rackman used to host. I used to go to the punk rock karaoke that was at the old Dragonfly on Santa Monica and Ooh. Wilcox about. And I that was many a show. I played many shows at the Dragonfly. The the Grazers? No, it was a band later called This Trip. Okay, time, okay, we're gonna put. I'm gonna put a pin in that because I'm gonna come back to the Strip. But yes, punk rock karaoke happened at. I've never. I never did heavy metal karaoke, but punk rock karaoke I did a bunch of times. And that band included people that had played in the Circle Jerks and and uh, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. And Mike Watt from the Minutemen oh. would would sometimes be in that. But that was that was a lot of fun. Ah, but you had so to know you had to know the song by heart to to mm-hmm. get up to to do it. But that was yeah. a really fun period of time. Okay, let's go back. To, tell me about the strip. It's not the strip. It's this trip. Oh, this trip. Oh, yeah. After uh, I. After the band broke up, the Grazers, I, I kind of stayed in L.A. I, I needed an excuse to stay in L.A., so I enrolled at the Musicians Institute, which is a music school over in Hollywood. And I enrolled in the bass department thinking I should learn to read music and I really want to learn proper technique. So I, I studied there for a year. As soon as I was done there, my girlfriend broke up with me moved out of our apartment, which was probably the best apartment I've ever owned. It was literally right behind oh, Spago, which was right behind the old wow. Tower Records. Wow. My apartment, it's that building is still still there. There's now a parking lot. It's like satellite parking for for uh you know what once was Tower Records. My our balcony was an unobstructed view over Sunset Boulevard and and uh, um, Mark Mothersbaugh's studio there, uh, you know, his that round yellowish building right on right across, you know, from uh, the old Tower Records. That was my view of like it. And it was like seven or eight hundred dollars a month for this big ass apartment with an amazing view. And then she broke up with me and I was like, well, I can't stay here by myself. And so, you know, I just got just the worst dump apartment right behind the galaxy theater uh, <laughs> on Hollywood Boulevard and Sycamore, which yep. was just like crackhead central in the nineties. Um, what was the club that that became? There was a club, the knitting factory, the knitting factory. So yeah, it, this was pre knitting factory, but I lived on that street. And um, I think the guy who used to be Superman lived on Sycamore right behind that too. The guy who would, who yeah. would walk up and down Hollywood uh, Boulevard yeah, yeah. until he passed away about a year ago. But yes, I think he lived uh, on that street as well. Yeah. So that's where I lived. And then I literally just answered an ad in the back of the LA weekly, someone looking for a bass player. And it was a band with three girls and another guy who did, percussion like bongos and congas and uh the two girls both played guitar and sang and there was a uh another female drummer and um it was great because one of the girls was dating uh this guy anthony who i think he owned uh the dragonfly either owned it or he worked at it or managed it but he also owned 
Cole Rehearsal Studios, which were just up the street on Cole. Um, very, very famous rehearsal studio. Um, Rage Against Machine recorded their, I think their second album in that rehearsal studio while we were there practicing across the hall. You know, we do all our show, our rehearsals there. And that was a really exciting time because we were playing with bands like, there's a band called Edna Swap, um, who they they had that song. Um, God, what is it called? That Natalie Imbruglia made famous. Yeah. Tor- was it Torn? Uh, Torn. The, yeah, because that, that was an Edna Swap song. And yeah, Anne uh, Ann from Edna Swap wrote that. And Previn. Yeah, Ann Previn. Previn. That's right. Um, I used to know her. And Carla, who later left that band when that band broke up, formed a band called Auto Lux. She was the drummer. Amazing fucking drummer. She now tours, you know, with like Jack White. She, you know, she's part of Jack's Jack White's sta- stable of uh, musicians and uh yeah, we played with like some amazing, amazing bands back in the '90s, man. It was a great time to be playing around LA. I miss, I miss uh, '90s LA people. I do too. I, it's it was easy to be poor here. Great I mean, clubs, it, it, Hell's yeah. Gate, um, mm-hmm. Opium Den. Uh, God, there were so many great clubs. Raji's. I had a. I went to Drew. Uh, it wasn't called Opium Den. Then it was called the Gaslight. The same space. And yeah, Drew yeah. Barrymore had her 16th birthday party there. And 16th? I had, a, I had a piece of her cake in my freezer. Uh, <laughs> I, I took home I took home a piece of her cake. We had it in our freezer for like for forever. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. LA in the 90s was so great, people, because yeah. there, there were no cell phones. There was no. no internet to fuck everything no. up. Everything was super cheap. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was easy to, to eat incredible food for nothing and have an awesome place like the place that you're describing, you know, right there in the heart of sunset. Now they're probably, it would probably ask six grand a month for that place. Who knew the fuck knows? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, and we would always end up at like, you know, the one one coffee shop from swingers, which at that time was really Down and dirty. sketchy and yeah. dirty. And there was like a gift shop in it because it was a hotel restaurant like it was uh god, it was 90s la was awesome well this i have to say as we wrap things up this is part of the reason why i'm i've been so ex- i was excited to talk to you and i've just had the best time because i know that you and i have been in the same room for countless sure. fucking for times sure. for sure we have been living parallel lives yeah. uh, here in the city of la although I've, i think i've had more hobo periods uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I had no, no. I was not making an okay living until the <laughs> mid two thousand, like two thousand. When Jimmy Kimmel hired me as a writer, that was my first good job, uh, and I was like thirty five. Understood. Like, it, uh, understood. <laughs> a lot of starving. A lot of starving oh, yeah. and crashing. But it was easy to do that. It was totally easy to do that back then. Yeah. Um, and we were also young and, you know, the, the world, it didn't matter because we were as long for me, it was like, as long as I'm having fun, I don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's so much fun to be had in the city of Los Angeles yeah. and, and doing something like this with you today. This is all, this is all that I want to do, uh, Steve. Yeah. So that's a weird way uh, of me saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know that you and I could nerd out for probably oh, yeah. a month. There's so much more shit I could talk to you about that would blow your fucking. Mind. Uh, I'm sure, and I think I could probably come up with a with a kernel or two 
for you as well. Cause, cause again, I know that you and I have had parallel lives and we have a lot of mutual yeah. friends and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, yeah. dude, I'm so psyched for you. Suicide squad. If people, if you haven't seen it, it's going to stand the test of time in 10, 10 years from now, people are going to be like suicide squads on TNT. Fuck. Yeah. I'm smoking a bowl again. It's going to be a blast. Um, but continued success to you. Thanks. Um, I hope you'll do this, you know, maybe a couple more months down the road. We can come I'd up love to. Different- yeah. Yeah. Anytime. We- just hit me up. We definitely will. All right. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. All right. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening, liking, subscribing, telling your friends. So many great guests coming down the pike, but you know, who could beat Steve Agee? And of course, (laughs) the Brando cast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. Big boy, 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 big boy